Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran Kansas City jazz saxophonist Matt Otto on the 2023 CD Kansas City Trio. This is the first in a series of albums coming out and was spurned by motivations over the COVID-19 hiatus to record more work. Over his career, he has recorded on well over 50 albums, each one a snapshot of his continuing and deepening relationship with improvised music for the past three decades. We cover quite a bit of ground in this interview. Enjoy. Great to see you, man. Good to see you too, man. How's life? Oh, pretty good. Hey, man, it's great to catch up with you with the new album. I know we've done this several times on Neon Jazz. It's a wonderful album. I've had time to really sink into it. And it just really, again, showcases your evolution, bringing in a lot of good cats to, to collaborate with. So thank you for taking a minute out. My pleasure. I'm glad you enjoyed listening to it. Yeah, it was wonderful. So I think the one thing before we get into this album is how did you get through the pandemic? How how did you I mean, it, it did its own thing to everybody and the jazz community. How did you get through it? And how does this album feel to have in this kind of post-pandemic era? Well, it was definitely a, a wake-up call for me in so many ways. I mean, obviously, I had it relatively easy compared to so many people. I have, you know, I was allowed to work online as a teacher, so I was teaching online during that time. And But both of my fathers, my stepfather and my father, both died during that. So that was rough. Yeah. Um, and it was hard to um, actually organize the memorials and all that because no one could fly and no one could really congregate. So it was, it was a rough time. Um, but it also made me realize that when I got out, I needed to do more recording and, and just, just share more of the music that I work on every day. And just that like, that's more of my purpose. You know, if I have a purpose, it's probably that, you know, making music and sharing it. So I, I just, when I, when we got re- able to record and be out in public and uh, go to studios and make music together, I was like, started recording a lot. And uh, that's, that is uh, the first product of that, this trio CD. But I did record um, enough for maybe four trio CDs. So I will maybe eventually get some more of that out. I tried to pick takes that made a nice listening experience overall. Um, so the uh, album that's coming out this month on origin it just came out has a couple more of the trio tracks from those dates on on that album there's i think there's four trio tracks on that as well but those are all originals and i was trying to make mostly a standards album on this last one so talk to me a little bit about this album specifically the kansas city trio about the cats that you picked to assemble around it how you felt like everybody worked on the album and just kind of your overall feeling of how it came out. It's, I think for a lot of sax players or a lot of improvisers, trios is a great setting because there's, you know, you got your bass, your rhythm section is ostensibly just the bass player and the drummer. And so it allows as a sax player, it allows you a lot of harmonic freedom, melodic freedom. And, and there is uh, a, a lot of space in the sound automatically because of the lack of a chordal instrument and i think it's the same if you're a piano player just playing with just bass and drums and you're the you know you're kind of the orchestra on top i i like that and so i've always enjoyed that i think a lot of sax players do and i also enjoy playing standards because that's what you know we grew up doing that's what my teacher taught me when i was in junior high and it's always been what i really work on and yet i haven't really ever recorded a standards album so i i thought i would 
try that. And so I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the, uh, you know, giving myself permission to do a standards album. I enjoyed um, the whole thing of getting the players together. And then we, we did the sessions like we did a gig. We would just play a tune. I mean, the, I guess the caveat being we did do multiple takes if we felt like we were kind of getting somewhere with the, with the arrangement or with the vibe of the tune. But in general, we kind of just, I just called tunes. We didn't have anything prepared. I would just call tunes in the, in the studio and the guys would be like, yeah, we know that. And we do it. And we do a few takes, see if we get anything from it. And then we just kept doing that till we were out of time. And so each of the sessions were like that, just calling tunes. And, and so it was really fun. It was just like a gig kind of low, low pressure. And, uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it doing it. Um, I also, uh, really liked the different players. I, I basically just hired, whoever could do the date, you know, I call some of my favorite guys and if they could do it, I put them in. So I had, you know, I had several dates booked ahead of time and then I just found people who could do those time slots. So who was on this particular album? If you want to kind of highlight who they are and your history with them. Yeah, sure. So, uh, uh, Jeff Harshbarger plays bass on a lot of it and Jeff's, you know, local, uh, strong bass player in town, creative spirit. He, uh, He's one of my, you know, well, I've, I've known him since I moved to town and we played together. I heard him the day I moved to town. Um, and so, yeah, I've known him 14 years or so. I consider him a good friend and uh, he's a great musician. So he's on, he's playing bass on several of the tracks. And then uh, Ben Lifer's playing bass on the first three or four tracks, four tracks. Ben also, I've known him since I moved here. I actually met him on MySpace before I moved here, back when MySpace was still a thing. Uh-huh. Uh, and he was young. I mean, I might have been 18 or 19. And But, you know, I reached out to him on MySpace, said, hey, I'm moving to town. Uh, you know, you look. he seemed like a jazz musician in town, and he was working a lot, as far as I could tell. So, yeah, we ended up playing right away. And then... Uh, the last bass player is Bob Bowman, who, you know, is the, he was the kind of one of the older, um, great players in town and has moved, since moved, uh, near Bozeman, Montana, but he, uh, he still comes through town as you know, and, and plays frequently. We just played in LA last month together and he's a great world-class bass player. He's played with everyone and he's just got amazing, uh, musical mind so he was he's on on the last two tracks and then the drummers are uh marty morrison who is originally from hannibal missouri but now works down in springfield at the university there he's the head of the jazz department more or less um and uh i met him through dave scott great trumpet player um dave's known marty for years and so i met marty through dave we did some gigs and then I love the way he plays. He's got a great, like this big beat, um, which is kind of a very specific way of playing time that's kind of uh, rare these days. But he has it. And uh, in fact, we played last couple last month when I played with Bob, we had Joe, Joe LaBarbera on the gig, and Joe has that same beat. It's a big beat. It's like so fun to play with it. Um, and so... Marty's on the first three tracks, and then uh, John Kaziller moots on 
uh, the next group of tunes. He, uh, I'm not, you know, I don't know a ton about John's history. We've played together a lot and talked a lot. Um, I think he came here from, I want to say Iowa, uh, after doing a degree or two. Amazing musician, you know, plays piano, vibes, drums. He's a great composer, uh, classically trained percussionist, amazing at playing Latin, Cuban, like all sorts of drums, uh, and amazing feel, really great swing drummer. I mean, just a really authentic and deep guy, listens well, interacts well. So I love playing with John. He also has a very, um, demanding presence in terms of his timekeeping. He, he really keeps a buoyancy, um, in the group and doesn't allow things to go below a certain threshold of, um, has a really high integrity for time and interaction. So I enjoy playing with him. And then, uh, the last drummer is Brian Stever on the last two tracks with Bob and Brian is like just one of the most creative drummers I've played with. He's just got a super unique voice on the instrument, a really unique way of a really great relationship with space. He plays with a ton of space and like space between beats, space on the kit. And so playing with him is like really, uh, he's just really creative and wonderful to play with. So he and Bob, well, Bob, he, they worked really well together as well. I mean, I think Brian plays great with, and Bob, they play great with everyone, but they particularly have a interesting connection when they play together. So that was the, that's kind of in a nutshell, the rhythm sections. So talk to me a little bit about what you hope the listener gets from these albums. Well, I, you know, I guess the way I listen to jazz, I mean, I, I would hope they would like listening to it the way they might like listening to similar types of jazz. So, you know, I listen to mostly jazz from the fifties and sixties. That's what I listened to this morning. I listened to some, uh, Dexter this morning. I listened to Jackie McLean this morning. Uh, uh, Tina Brooks or Tina Brooks. I'm not sure how you say his name. Um, I listened to him this morning. Um, so, you know, I just like people who improvise melodically. I mean, that's about as simple as I can put it. I like melodic improvisation. I love m the modernists who I consider to be like Joe Henderson um, Coltrane, uh, you know, I like, uh, modern players, but, but modern in the context of like the music from the fifties and sixties, I'm not like, I, I feel like that's still the, uh, where the real, uh, magic lies during that time. Uh, partially probably because of economics, there's like, there was a lot more opportunity. Like you've got like miles, the plug nickel recording, right? He plays seven nights or, Maybe he played longer, but they recorded, you know, a, a seven CDs or something. I, I think it, maybe it's less, but I had all those and listened to those to death. And, you know, that's a hard thing now. I mean, you do have the Green Lady, which, you know, arguably allows them to have the same band for a long time. But but it's not a list. It's not really a listening venue per se. The players are great um, and it gives them an opportunity to develop something. But, you know, to have like this kind of emphasis in creative art at a club for that long with the same touring band. It's, it's pretty. And then, you know, you're talking about the best players in the world. Um, it's just like that, that heyday of creative art in jazz is just, I don't think it's ever come around again to that extent. 
So that might have something to do with it. And yeah. the civil rights movement, you know, um, infusing this with such an important kind of energy and meaning. So, you know, it's just the best. And to me, it's the best jazz. But, you know, maybe I sound like an old person by saying that, but I, I just, that's what I listen to. And so I was trying to make an album that I thought would be, would might fit into their, into that listening uh, schematic where, you know, if you like that, if you like Sonny Rollins trio, maybe you'd like a track from my album. Not to say that I'm, you know, remotely like Sonny, um, but nonetheless, you know, that kind of just a nod to that. Yeah, I feel that. I definitely feel that. You know, the one thing that's kind of the, the backdrop to what everybody's doing now with new albums coming out and live music picking up is, you know, from my perspective, I'm kind of looking at the health of this community that we're in. You know, there was talk for a while that people were leaving big cities and getting out of jazz and there was no work and it was hard to make a living. But it seems like things are stronger than ever now. What's your beat on the community coming back and things resuscitating? Yeah, I think it's um, I think everyone who plays jazz seriously does it for the love of the art. I mean, we would play jazz if there was zero money in it. And that goes from me to Pat Metheny. I mean, it doesn't matter how famous you are or how much money you're making. You would be playing jazz regardless of the money. And that is absolutely the case. So I don't think it ever really wanes in terms of it being a viable human art form, an important one. But I think, you know, economics is a huge determining factor as to whether you can do it uh, consistently. And, um, and you know, you could imagine if you're trying to pay the bills and raise a family and you can't play music to do it, it means you have to do something else. And that takes time away from the art form. Whereas if the if there's a thriving kind of community where there's work, you can play, say, like, uh, you know, at the Blue Room or uh, any number of venues in town and make a living to an extent, maybe teach a little on the side. And you can basically be working on your art form while making a living. And that's ideal. I think that's a lot easier in smaller cities. You know, cost of living here is a fraction in New York or L.A. And yeah. that's huge because the gigs pay about the same. And <laughs> they might even pay better here, at least for the little guys. You know, I consider myself a little guy. I'm not like a big jazz star and so for little player you know players that are just who love the art form and do it all the time it's easier to live in a small city you know having lived in new york and just like working i worked six and seven nights a week and could just and was struggling week to week to pay my rent and you know i think i could have probably done that indefinitely but the idea of like being able to have a little less economic pressure and more artistic freedom to maybe write, practice, reflect on what I want to do um, is, is a really wonderful thing for me. Um, I do miss those scenes, LA and New York. I miss the players, you know, mainly and the, and yeah. the energy that having that culture, so many great players kind of, you know, uh, sharing their music and you can go out and hear it and you do hear it. Even if you're not trying to hear it, it's like everywhere, you know, well, you know, Kansas City, I've noticed just with the draft being here, the World Cup's coming, there's a stature that Kansas City's getting. And I think that you cats are really a, a backbone of, of, I mean, you know, there's live jazz music in the airport now. I mean, there's yeah. all of the, you know, there's all of these different things that are just lifting the tent of this city up. So I think we're going to some really good places. And, and, and I think with Bobby at UMKC and just 
cats like Adam Larson coming to town. There's so much stock that's getting put into this town, and you're definitely a leader of that that jazz scene that's that's thriving now in this town. Yeah, I think it's a great scene. I, I agree. I, I really think it's healthy. I also like the fact that it's fairly um, integrated. We have a nice community collective mindset amongst the musicians. It's less clicky than, in my opinion, than LA or New York, possibly because it's smaller. Um, but you know, it's really nice that way. I feel like everyone's supportive of each other, regardless of their specific genre or their, you know, specific passion. You know, whether it's bebop or more something more modern. Um, it, there's a huge respect for each other in the community, and I see that very clearly here. I think we had it in New York and LA, but I think it's, it's just easier here. I, I see it better here. It's less, definitely less clicky. And I think that's healthy. Um, and hopefully it will even get better as time goes on. You know, I, I still think we need a few more creative venues that are really um, there for the artists which is a hard thing to do because, you know, there's the money issue. But in L.A., you know, someone like June Lee, who ran the Blue Whale for years, was great at this. He had this, you know, the Blue Whale was like uh, an artistic, an artist-focused venue that still had immense success, you know. And I think if he had done it here, it would have still been going. I think the reason it ended after the pandemic was because of the economics of it. It's super expensive downtown L.A., or uh, Rocco, who who ran Rocco's in L.A., he moved to San Francisco. He was another perfect example of that sort of club owner who knew how to let the artists do what they do and then create an environment which encourages the audience to listen. And it, it has a it works, you know, and I think uh, Doug and Lori were doing that uh Lori Chandler. Yeah. You know, with Take Five, they were really, they really had that same thing. And we need some more venues like that in town, yeah. um, I think. And, you know, the Blue Room's good. Uh, you know, Green Lady, Black Dolphin, they're all good clubs. But we need some more that are just like uh, listening rooms where, you know, I remember at the Blue Whale, June would come out or, or the bartender would come out and tell everyone before the set, no talking. You know, you got to listen. It's going to be a one, it's going to be a set. And then when the set's over, you guys can talk and go to the bar and, and then we'll do another set and be two sets a night, you know, yeah. lots of space for people to socialize. But when they played, you know, um, they were very specific about having, uh, in fact, they did let you talk in the very back. They're like, if you want to talk, you can talk quietly in the back of the club or outside. And so it was just such a nice thing to do. And that's all it took. And then it created this culture of listening. And then people are like, wow, I really like listening to live music yeah. because, you know, sometimes you have to force someone to put their phone down for a minute. <laughs> <Listen>. Certainly. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Well, Matt, if anyone wants to pick up the new albums, subsequent albums, learn about any live gigs you got, where can they go? The best place? Uh, probably Bandcamp. It's a pretty nice website and, you know, the artists get a fair cut. Plus you can just, you can listen to the stuff for free there or, and then you can also offer, you know, a buck or two for the album, or you can put in 20 bucks for the album. It's like, it's really nice. It kind of embraces all anyone if you can afford it or not, and you can still listen to it. So a little better than Spotify, but it is, it's also on Spotify at all the streaming services. And then I, I have copies that, you know, when I'm around town on a gig, I'm happy to, you know, offer the same thing, you know, 
So, well, I, I will tell you this, Matt, knowing you as long as I have being in this scene, and I'm going to encourage anyone out there in Kansas City or anyone out there in the world, you are a phenomenal talent. Kansas City is lucky to have you. And when you perform live, it really does stop a room because there's so much talent and, and soul that comes out of your horn and what you do. So thank you for taking a minute out. I'm always very appreciative of having the chance to talk to you about your art. I appreciate it. Best of luck with this. And as, as always, I'm always looking forward to seeing you live out there. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thanks for taking the time as well. I, I do appreciate you listening to it and reaching out to me. Thanks for listening and tuning in to another Neon Jazz interview where we give you a bit of insight into the finest cats in Lawrence, Kansas, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. Thanks to Matt for his time, energy, and cool, and coming back to Neon Jazz. If you want to hear more Neon Jazz interviews, you can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us at YouTube, and for everything Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the jazz, my friends. Neon Jazz.